Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English literature and film studies at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave to my students in the winter of 2022 in a course on steampunk. And this was a lecture about how to read comics. Uh, some of you might be sitting there going, really? You have to have a lecture on how to read comics? Listen on, listen on. Now, I want to note for my podcast listeners that this is going to be perhaps a tough listen because a lot of this is going to be visual. So this might be the episode that you want to check out on YouTube, but I'll try to remember as much as I can to be descriptive about the panels that I'm talking about. So just to say it's a very, very visual lecture, but uh, it may still be something you learn from. Some of my students are surprised that there needs to be a lecture about how to read comics. Why well, have a crash course in comics? Doesn't everybody know how to read comics? When I was teaching uh, our course at McEwen on readings and speculative fiction some years ago, I included a few comic books in the course. And when it came time for my English majors to read those comics, they felt that they were at some sort of loss for how to analyze them. And I don't think it was that they couldn't read them for content, although I did have a few students who felt really adrift. They were like, I've never really read comic books, or I haven't read comic books since I was a kid. And uh, and I found out from a friend who uh, you know owned a comic shop for many years, still owns a comic shop, and he said, um, you know, he, he would see that in, in people who would read comics as kids, and then they wouldn't read comics at all, say in between the age of seven or eight, up until they were a, uh, an adult. And then they come back to this and they found themselves, um, you know, lacking perhaps the intuition that a child has for picture books. Um, but, uh, but my English students struggled with how to read a comic, perhaps closely. How do we read a comic for analysis? How, what is the grammar of a comic? What is the syntax of a comic book? They knew how to take prose fiction and analyze it. And I've had this same problem with students coming into film classes if they haven't had any exposure to what the, you know, grammar of film is, what is, what is film language. Uh, and just like film has its own uh, features that are, are, you know, endemic to it, th that work, you know, they're, they're particular to cinema. Comics have certain things that I don't want to say, I would never want to say that only comics can tell that story, but I'd say it this way. Only comics can tell that story this way, this way. Okay. So people notice that there are similarities between film and comics, um, but they're not quite the same thing. There are things that cinema can do that comic books can't. Comic books cannot do jump scares, but comic books can render moments of intense combat over a two-page spread and allow the eye to just wander around the page, taking in the text and taking in the image and absorbing it. Cinema tries to do that. If we've ever seen the opening sequence to Deadpool, or there's a moment in one of the Avengers films when everything sort of slows down in this wonderful tableau, but the movie still has to keep going. Whereas if I want, I can spend as much time admiring a page of comics art as I want. And that's one of the, I think, really... Um, really important differences between comics and um, film. And in that way, comics are a little like um, 
prose books and that our eye does wander around the page. The difference is that, you know, we will mostly only go back in prose if it's particularly beautiful or if we feel like we've missed something, at which point we have to think, hmm, somebody screwed up. Whereas in comics, we might go back just to admire and that, you know, to see the beauty again, beauty of prose, the beauty of a great um, piece of art. But our eye is moving all over the page and, and that creates a, a very different experience. I think mean, it creates a very different experience than, than the other modes that I'm, I'm speaking about there. Now, to give this crash course, I'm gonna use um, some steampunk comics. And we're looking at two this semester in my course. We're looking at the absolutely amazing um, series Bitter Root, uh, which has been created by a all black creative team. Uh, the artists, the writers, everyone who works on this, uh, black artists, black writers, black creators. And it's, it's a fabulous bit of steampunk set in the jazz era. Um, I'm not going to be talking about that a bunch today because that's going to be happening further into the semester. Um, but uh, we're going to take a look at Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda's um, Monstrous. Both of these from Image Comics. So Image Comics uh, has the corner, as far as I'm concerned, on really great steampunk comics. Um, although I suppose there are, there are people who would argue that neither of them are steampunk because one is jazz era and the other is art deco and that neither of those things are Victorian and therefore not steampunk. It's steampunk. <laughs> um, and I'm going to be using Scott McCloud's lovely Understanding the Invisible Art of Comics or Understanding Comics the Invisible Art um, as a way of, of understanding for this crash course. I realize that there are people who, you know, do comic studies who would say that McLeod's approach is not the end-all be-all. Um, my pushback would be it is when you only have a single lecture <laughs> to get people situated. If you want to, if we want to do this fast, we want to use McLeod. There are other people we could, we could use, but their content is, is more dense. Let's just start off by understanding what it, you know, comic book is because when I say comic books and then students will say, they'll say graphic novels right away. So I'll be like, has anybody ever read some, you know, comic books? And students will say, oh, I've read some graphic novels. And they sort of say it like they don't read comics. They read graphic novels and news for you, you read comics. Whether you call it a graphic novel or not, or whether you're actually reading a bonafide graphic novel, if you read something in the comics medium, this mixture of art and text. You are reading comics. And the only reason you would say you're not is because you're pretentious or you're embarrassed and you need to be, you need to be, you don't need, you know, embarrassment, you don't need to be embarrassed. The French read comics as adults, no problem. And the, and the French produce comics that are meant just for adults. And I don't just mean like naughty comics, um, but comics that are written about mature subject matter in a way that appeals to people who uh, are older than 18 years old or who want something that's more like, you know, the, the great literary novel. There are French comics that are like that. Likewise, um, Japan, tons of comics. We call them manga, right? That's the Japanese word for it. And manga, the, the, the content of manga varied, right? If somebody says, I don't read manga because I don't like robots and I don't like you know, Sailor Moon, and it's that's there's so much more to manga than that, and it's true of comics in North America too. But we still have this stigma. We still have this stigma that that comics are for kids, that comics are low art, 
that comics aren't worth our time. I think that's all crap. Um, but let's understand that comic books and graphic novels use the same medium to tell their stories, to produce their narratives. What's the difference? Well, a comic book is a series, a periodic series produced in the comics medium, and the stories in a comic book are released episodically and can continue indefinitely, kind of like a TV show. So anybody who's who's like, I don't read comics because do you watch TV shows? Same diff. It's just a slight, you know, it's a slightly different medium. Um, so get over yourself. But an example of that from uh, steampunk circles would be Joe Benitez's Lady Mechanica, the absolutely lovely, beautiful art of Joe Benitez. Um, <laughs> not a great comic book in my estimation, but great art, awesome art. Mr. Benitez, absolutely love it. Uh, this, the, the storytelling leaves something to be desired occasionally. Um, and, and that's a comic book because that's like issue one, issue two, issue three, issue four. And that could go on indefinitely. It hasn't, <laughs> but it could. Um, and then you get Granville by Brian Talbot. And that's an example of what we, we can definitely say is a graphic novel. Because the, you know, if we want to differentiate comic books from graphic novels, say that a graphic novel refers to a standalone, long-form narrative produced in the comics medium. So, uh, you know, that's a standalone thing. Long-form narrative. It might be two or three volumes, but it's not going on forever. They're going to they're gonna release this many issues. The story's going to end. It's going to be over. Done. Um, you know, so somebody picks up a collected version of comic books... That's still not really a, a graphic novel by that definition. And we also have the comic strip. And here I have one from Hark a Vagrant, uh, which is a comic strip. It's an online comic strip. We'll talk about web comics in just a second. But it's a good example of a comic that occasionally <laughs> includes steampunk content. Um, Wondermark is another great example of a steampunk comic strip, or steampunk adjacent at the very least. Uh, comic strip is a periodic series produced in the comics medium. The stories in a comic strip are released episodically and can continue continue indefinitely. So they're like a comic book, but shorter, right? And and that difference changes the way the story is told. If you've ever read a collection of comic strips, it's very different from reading a comic book in that, you know, if you read a collection of, say, Calvin and Hobbes, you hit the joke at the end of every uh, strip, whereas a joke might be uh, developed over the course of, you know, an entire section, entire vignette of an Archie comic. Um, this particular strip has uh, Jules Verne and H.G. Wells hanging out, and Jules Verne has an airship in his hand, and he, lo he lobs it up in the air, and he goes, airship! And uh, Wells comes along and he says, oh, that's nice, Jules. You sing so, Wells. It's pretty complicated, though, really. I don't know why I'm doing a German accent for a Frenchman. I'll get it down. Just give me a second. Um, but if you are interested, I could show you the blueprints. Check out mine! Hey, how did you build that? So now Wells has an airship too, and he lobs it up in the air. And Wells says, I just made it up. And this is a play off of the idea that Jules Verne was rigorous about the science in his fiction. And Verne was like, science? Who cares about science? Let's just get on to the story. So Verne says, you can't just make things up. Why not? Mine works just as well as yours. And blueprints are boring. And we see Wells's uh, airship getting up behind uh, Vern's, and it's going chick, 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 and then boom, boom, and it blows Vern's up. And Vern's, my dirigible, 
Oh no, I'm sorry. It was trying to make social metaphors, he says. This is a very inside joke. Uh, you have to know that a lot of Wells's science fiction was always about something else, like War of the Worlds, Martian Invasion. It was really about slapping British imperialist colonialism in the face. Um, that the island of Dr. Moreau was about, you know, the way in which humans act in bestial ways. Um, and so there's always this social metaphor. Uh, truthfully, there were a number of social metaphors in Verne's work as well, though Verne absolutely was more interested in the science of things. Anyway, we have a comic strip, right? And then we have a web comic and web comics, I, I, and they're distinct, they're distinct from comic strips because the goal of some web comics can be like a comic book in that they mean to tell a long-form story, but they're going to do it page by page or, you know, series of panels by series of panels. Here I've got an example from uh, Phil and Ka uh, Kaya Folio's um, Girl Genius, which has been around since before 2008, because I remember being at Steam Powered in... Um, in California, the first big steampunk convention and meeting the folios at their booth where they were selling, um, the early volumes of girl genius. So this comic has been going on for a very long time, started out in black and white, went to full color, and then they started recoloring the very early stuff in a, in a sort of desaturated sepia look. Um, they had this beautiful, bright color palette and then second wave steampunk got bigger and bigger. And I don't know if it was because they were like, ah, oh, that actually looks better or because they wanted to appeal to the fan base, but they changed the color palette at some point. Anyway, we've got uh, a page from Girl Genius. This is volume two, page 20. And um, the, the folios published Girl Genius on a page by page basis. You get one page at a time. And so it was episodic in that respect. And a webcomic is a periodic series produced in the comics medium. Stories in a webcomic are released episodically and can continue indefinitely. And really the only thing that sets them apart from these other forms is that it's published on the web. Now, what's interesting is that in recent years, um, I've seen a move, at least in uh, online comics coming out of Korea and Japan, where it's scrollable, where the, the format becomes this scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. And it's changing uh, the way that some of the things that we're going to talk about about later in the lecture uh, are used. Like comics have a format when they're on a page, but if you know that your art is never going to end up on a page, how does that change the way you produce it? Uh, the folios were producing web comics with the end goal of print. What if you never thought it was going to get to print? How would that change that format? And it's, it's, it's worth considering these things as we analyze comics one to another. Um, and, and we could analyze this particular page of Girl Genius. It's great because um, the characters are falling. And we get three very long rectangular frames. Um, and just this, like, this, you know, drop. But it isn't just, you know, a play-by-play -play of this object dropping. The middle panel, I said frames earlier, I meant panel. The middle panel of these three long rectangular panels which take, you know, a, a standard comics page and divide it perfectly into three, is a close-up of the people who are falling inside this steampunk uh, flying machine. And then we get two triangles, one in, in the top right-hand corner, or, yeah, 
top right hand corner and the other in the in the bottom left hand corner where we get extra action and dialogue there's a ton of dialogue on this page it's a, and it, and it's really cool how well it's it's um spaced out to make sure that we don't lose out on the images that's an example of a steampunk web comic i want to come back around to the idea of comic books and graphic novels because when we have a collected edition like monstrous volume one that's what my students are looking at volume one awakening it is a collection of several issues of the series that had already been coming out for some time. Um, it, you know, I remember seeing the uh, covers to this and the people at my comic shop going, Mike, why aren't you reading Monstrous? And I'm like, I'm just busy right now. I don't have any time for this. I just steampunk. And I'm like, I'm not doing steampunk right now because this was before I was working on my book and it was after I'd done my PhD and I just needed a little bit of a steampunk break. And, but they kept going, you got to read it. You got to read it. And so I said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to read it when it comes out in the collected edition. Then I did. And I was completely blown away initially just by Sana Takeda's art. Um, but in rereads more and more, I, I just so appreciate Marjorie Liu's storytelling as well. So we get a, a sort of both thing going on when we get these collected editions, especially in a series like Monstrous, which isn't like the ongoing series that come from Marvel or DC, um, where they've been going on for so long that they're no longer creator controlled. There's that the person who started this story is not the person who's telling it anymore because, you know, in the case of Superman, it's been nearly 100 years, uh, since that, you know, series started. Um, well, we'll be in a couple decades. And, and so obviously it's not Siegel and Schuster, Siegel and Schuster anymore. It's whoever's working on a Jean Luen Yang or somebody like that, um, taking up the mantle and running with it. But every now and again, in a monthly comic book, they'll just get Joe Artist and Jill uh, Writer to construct an issue. And it's a one shot. They call them, you know, they call them one shots or, just, you know, single issue story. And that could end up in a collected edition a collected volume, but it wouldn't really advance the, the, say the storyline that, you know, was going on in the, in the monthly issues, but monstrous because, you know, image comics is, is largely devoted to comics that are, they're made by this person and this person. These are the people who are working on it. So it might just be, you know, the, the brainchild of one artist or an artist and an, and, uh, and a writer or just a writer who gets different artists along the way. But at any rate, there is a singularity of vision, of creative vision in those cases, in the cases of uh, comics uh, made by companies like Image. And Image isn't the only one doing it. We've got other, other comics um, companies that do the same sort of thing that Image does. But what we get then are comic books that are building towards a massive graphic novel massive graphic novel because it's still Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda who are publishing Monstrous to this day. Okay. So we get the periodic series produced in the comics medium, but we're also ultimately getting uh, a lengthy graphic novel. Will Eisner called comics, the, the comics medium. What is comics art? I kept talking about the comics medium. What is the comics medium? It is sequential art. That's the best definition I think that we have. Will Eisner's very succinct, incredibly concise uh, statement, sequential art, which usually combines image with text, though not always. I have comics where there is no text. I don't think we can really have comics without image, though. 
Although there are certain parts of Dave Sims' um, Cerebus that looks that way. But the comic overall is going to get back around to having Image at some point, even if it, you know, in the case of Dave Sims' Cerebus, takes place in the dark in a couple of scenes, and all you get is speech balloons and text. Usually combines image with text in a meaningful sequence. So this isn't just like random images. These images craft a story. And this is that overlap between cinema and the comics medium. If a movie is storyboarded, storyboards often look like comics. And there are artists who work in comics who work in storyboarding and vice versa, because they're really good at sequential art. And so we can take a look at this page from Monstrous, where Micah is speaking to her captor inside the um, this, this, this armored car, armored cart. And, you know, she reaches out to get a smoke from her captor. And we see that being passed across. There's no actual motion going on, but we perceive through a process called closure um, how the narrative is spooling out here. So it's sequential art, images in a sequence, and in North America, we read those left to right. And, and in Japan, you read them in the opposite direction. You read them right to left. Um, so that's a, the, the convention of what direction we read a comic is um, arbitrary. We don't have to read it that way anymore than we have to read language that way. Um, so we, in North America, we read comics in the same direction that we read uh, our language, uh, or the language of English. I shouldn't say our language, because there's lots of languages in North America. Um, and we not only read in that direction, but then we go top down. And that's also true for speech balloons. So you read the top, you read the topmost speech balloon in a panel first, and then the one that's down from it, or you go left to right. You sort of have to intuitively look and figure out like, where does that go? And that can sometimes require a little bit of like jazzing around, but you, you work it out. Let's get down to the medium uh, and, and how the image interacts with the text as well. Um, in McLeod's Understanding Comics, he talks about the universality of cartoon imagery, and he shows a photorealistic image of a face. It might even be an just a perfect photograph. Um, and then we see it being reduced in complexity uh, from a sketch that looks an awful lot like the photo to a face that resembles the photo, but not perfectly to a picture where it's like, yeah, that's the same hairdo. And we can still tell that it's a male or a masculine face. And then finally, we just get the circle, two eyes and a line for the mouth with no smiley, but the kind of face that we see in emojis. Um, and he says the more cartoony a face is, the more people it could be said to describe, which is why emojis work as a way of, of communicating how we feel, because we don't have to be like, oh, I have to choose an emoji that looks exactly like me or has hair like me or, you know, skin like me. We just go, okay, I'm going to choose this emoji because it's completely abstract uh, you know, nobody's head is perfectly circular and, you know, we don't look, we don't look that way. Um, and so it, it creates a sense of universality, but the closer that the image comes to looking like reality, the less, the fewer people it could be said to describe, the less universal it is. And we can take a look at this further, uh, through images, uh, of Captain Nemo from, um, Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in two different comics, the first is uh, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and this rendering here is done by Kevin O'Neill. I would say that it falls 
more towards the realistic side of things. It's not perfectly realistic, but it's far more realistic um, than Bruno's Nemo, which is just like very thick, straight line art, um, very exaggerated size of shoulders. The width of the head is super skinny. The length of the head would be monstrous in real life. Uh, people would be like, are you an alien? Um, and so that's uh, a more universal, we might say, version of uh, Nemo than Kevin O'Neill's is. So Kevin O'Neill's version has lots of uh, lines, uh, lots of sketch lines. Um, there's more detail and the proportions are more realistic. The one that Bruno does uh, is exaggerated again, but we can still recognize it as a person. And when we put those side by side, we might also be able to say, yeah, they both appear to be the Captain Nemo that Vern uh, described in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and mostly in the Mysterious Island. So less universal, usually more detail, more realistic, more universal, less detail, less realistic. And he has a number of scales for that. Uh, McLeod does in, um, in Understanding Comics. He talks about how moving from the left side with the photo to the emoji looking image is a move from complexity to simplicity, from realism to iconic uh, images, objective to subjective positions, specific to universal. Sana Takeda's art is definitely more complex, less simple, more realistic, not so iconic. Uh, so much so that, you know, if you were to just glance through the book, you might be confused on certain pages between the protagonist, Micah Halfwolf, and one of the antagonists, uh, Sophia, at least before she's wounded. Um, so we get a, you know, it's not as iconic. It's not like when we, when we see Batman or, or Wonder Woman on a page, there's this immediate sort of like iconic recognition based upon color schemes, but also simplicity of costume. Archie, Betty, Veronica, Jughead all jump out and we are immediately recognizable, even though like all you really need to change from Betty to Veronica is like hair color. Um, but those are, those are some simple ways of, of differentiating characters, um, in comics. Santa Takeda going for something more complex and more, something more realistic, um, something more objective. And what, what do we mean by this? Well, we get a very clear idea of what the artist's vision is for what's going on here. Whereas, um, a more, uh, simple or iconic approach might be open to greater interpretation depending on the artist's goals. But we get specifics as well. We, we're not guessing at the type of weapon somebody's holding or the color of their costume or the, you know, the, the detail on an axe blade. That's all clear to us. So that's, um, that's just the simplicity versus complexity of image. How realistic does it look and how does that affect us as the reader? And then McLeod talks about how closure works in comics, a movement from one panel to another, or the eyes movement anyway. And he says, this phenomenon of observing the parts, but perceiving the whole has a name. He's been talking about this, like if we only see half of a sign, we should be able to extrapolate what the rest of the sign looks like. Um, if we see, you know, uh, half of somebody's face, we can extrapolate what we think the rest of it looks like. In fact, we've been doing this a ton through COVID. Um, you know, people have a mask up then they take the mask down. You go, Oh, that's not at all what I thought you'd look like. I didn't know you had a beard. Um, that kind of thing. And we call 
observing the parts, but perceiving the whole closure. Okay. Um, and McLeod talks about the space between the panels. And he says, that's what comics aficionados have named the gutter. Okay. And there's a lot to be said about gutters, but we're not going to get into it right now. Just know that sometimes the gutter is manipulated to do something. And it doesn't, it's not like deep, deep meaning. Uh, if you take a look at some of the panels in Monstrous, you're going to see that people are sh- getting shoved out of their panel, <laughs> that they break the wall of the panel and they're actually sort of moving through out into the gutter and potentially overlapping into the next panel. What is the artist trying to achieve? There's a sense of dynamism, probably, you know, this is action packed. Um, but here we have these, these two images side by side with a gutter between and the gutter is the space of mystery. We don't know what happens in the gutter because it's blank. It's just white or it's black or it's whatever color they've decided. So in the first panel that McLeod draws here, he's got this guy with an ax, this face filled with fury. Now you die. And he comes at this other guy who's in the foreground going, no, no gutter. So end of the panel gutter next panel moon silhouette of buildings, a night sky over a, a, a metropolitan area, a city, and the scream, "Ea!" My friend, I had a friend in high school who always used to love to read uh, sound effects and comics literally, right? So he'd be like, "Ee ya ah ah." That's how he. That's how he pronounced that one. Um, so what's happened from the the guy with the axe coming at the guy without the axe? We don't know. Not at this point. We would need more images, but we have. A pretty decent sense based upon the brain's, you know, ability to do pattern recognition to say, well, dude who was yelling, no, no, is probably dead. It's not for sure. Not for sure, but it's likely. So we go from panel to panel and we generate closure. And sometimes we need a lot of closure because there's that big jump from, you know, guy with an axe to cityscape and a scream. But sometimes we need very little. So McLeod talks about a number of different shifts that we see in comics uh, and he talks about these shifts as panel to panel transitions and he's got a number of categories for them. The first category he calls moment to moment. This is the one that requires very little closure, moment to moment. And we see one of these on the page when Micah Halfwolf finally gets to Lady Yvette and Lady Yvette is seen in three quick, almost square panels as recognition dawns upon her face. But her image is mostly the same. Like, it's not, you know, uh, Sana Takeda doesn't have, you know, a full body image of Lady Yvette in the first image and then a medium shot, kind of like a little more close up. She's not zooming in. It's a close up of her face, to use cinematic language. Um, It's a close up of her face. And in the first image, she's squinting her eyes and kind of looking at Micah, trying to figure out who she is. And then in the second panel, there's this sense of recognition dawning. And then in the final panel, Micah, Micah Halfwolf, like she sees who she is, but this is done visually in a moment to moment transition series of them, three of them, you know, side by side. And those give us that, that awareness that not only by the text at the end of that series of images, but through the images as well. Great, great art by Sana Takeda. It, you know, the human face expressions difficult to do. I've seen really, you know, like comics artists who are amazing at drawing action, at drawing figures, who are challenged 
to to represent the nuances of human emotion. Uh, Sana Takeda, not one of those people. She can do both. Um, but that's moment to moment. And then we get action to action. So these are action to action transitions featuring... McLeod says a single subject in distinct action to action progressions. I suppose what he means by single subject is just that it sticks with one event. Um, I don't think he means character, but subject. Like, you know, in this particular case... Uh, Micah and Sophia locked in mortal combat with each other. Uh, these are definitely, definitely action to action progressions. This page is nothing but action. And it's worth noting, uh, how the gutter, uh, is done at angles, almost like Dutch angle camera work. It's really dynamic and it lends a sense of excitement to the page in the way that the action is moving. It's not just confined to a very, you know, slotted nine rectangles, uh, classic, you know, the Watchmen comic was done in that, in that particular breakdown. And it can, you can do a lot with it, but it's, I think it's interesting to see what people have been doing with panels, uh, more and more in, in the last few years. Uh, Jason Aaron's run on, on Thor with the female Thor did some really amazing stuff with panel work, but Sana Takeda is plotting out the shape of this page using these panels to generate that action. Action to action. And and, and here we see one of those examples where uh, a character is out of their panel. Micah is out of her panel at the very, very bottom. She's uh, The image is shoving up into the last one. Uh, and sometimes that's just done because it looks cool, because they need more room. Um, but ultimately, there may be something to be said about uh, that intrusion into some other panel. And then uh, McLeod talks about subject-to-subject transitions. These are, you know, you move from one perspective to another while you're still saying within a scene or like a location. Um, and, and it doesn't jump away. It's not what McLeod will call a non-sequitur. And he says that there's a degree of reader involvement that's necessary to render these transitions meaningful. And I think one of the best examples of this in Monstrous is when there's this moment with these dogs who might sniff out uh, Micah and the fox uh, child Kippa hiding. And, um, it, you know, really looks like things are about to go south. And then the dogs like they're, they're about to go up into this cart and find them. And then they turn. And at first we don't know why they turn. Something's out there, Samuel, something that ain't sitting on that wagon bench. And the dogs are right. And again, I just, I, my, my friend from high school, but you know, that's, that's the fun thing about the onomatopoeia, I guess we'd say of um, sound in comics. We get these non-diegetic bits of text, both the speech balloons. Nobody sees those in you know, speech balloons floating around in their world. And they don't have, you know, the sounds floating around in the world. Those are non-diegetic. Non-diegetic means it's not in the story world. Diegetic means it's in the story world. And then we get this cutaway to Master Ren, the talking cat, um, saying, that's right, I used to sex both your mothers and fathers, you worthless mangy. You know, he's he's basically insulting the dogs from a distance to try to get them to come over and fight with him. He's, he's the distraction. But this is a subject-to-subject moment because the first panel, dogs and the dog handlers. Second panel, Master Ren's perspective. So we can get those kind of subject-to-subject jumps. And we also get scene-to-scene transitions. And McLeod thinks that deductive reasoning is often required uh, for these 
they are, I think, in many ways, like the kind of jumps in time that we get in films that play with flashbacks, flash forwards, dream sequences. Um, and uh, Marjorie Liu and Santa Takeda play with this several times for similar reasons. We get flashbacks to Micah's um, conversations with her sister, Moriko, um, and then it will jump back to the action that's currently happening. So we get the this, you know, conversation on horseback between Micah and Moriko, and then a jump to Micah in prison. Um, they're talking about how dangerous this is going to be in the flashback, and then we see how dangerous it is in the realization. And something else that we should pay attention to is the use of color. How uh, Takeda makes sure that the color of a scene is distinct enough from the next one so that when we turn the page, uh, we get that shift. I also want to say, using this particular example where we've got one page that's almost sepia-toned entirely, and then the next page is a little colder because it takes place in a dungeon, more blues and greens, that a really good comic artist will use the page as a gutter. That we get gutters from panel to panel, but the page itself provides the opportunity for the reader to be surprised occasionally. We'll talk about that more in just a second. Um, and then uh, McLeod talks about aspect to aspect, where uh, you know we might see a bunch of images, or let's like, say around a crime scene. We don't get any of those really in Monstrous, although some of the fight sequences are dynamic enough that they feel a bit like a mix of action to action and aspect to aspect. And then finally, McLeod talks about the non sequitur, which offers no logical relationship between panels whatsoever. We don't really have any of those. I mean, you might say that the the moment with the Professor Cat at the end of every issue would be an example of that, but I, I just don't think we have non sequiturs in Monstrous. It's too much a linear narrative to have non sequiturs. Um, now I want to talk a little bit about how McLeod uh, speaks about the relationship between text and image in in the comics medium. Um, and and again, I'm gonna I'm gonna highlight that idea that the page can be used as gutter. Uh, with this moment where we've got the, the, there's, there's two different types of text on the page in this sequence from Monstrous. There's this typewritten text, which is an official report of what happened, and then the action as it actually occurred. And what's great about this, uh, is that the speech balloons, which are still being done in handwritten, uh, font, or a font that looks like it's handwritten, th there's a dissonance between these. The report says a thing, and then there's a sort of ironic distance between the action that is occurring. But right at the beginning of the first page of this sequence, there's an explosion. There's an explosion, and and, and it's right at the bottom of the page, and it is at the rightmost corner of the page. So it's the very last thing that the eye should go to when looking at this page. And so we wonder, what's created the explosion? What has made the boom? And we turn the page, and we see the entrance of the Inquisitrixes. And I love that so much because it's like great cinema that you'd have an explosion, great big flash of light, and then through the light and through the chaos, step the Inquisitrixes. What a pathetic mess. I just, it's, it's great comics art. It's absolutely fantastic. But again, we've got that interplay back and forth between what's being said 
on the page of what's being said in this report and what, you know, was said in the actual moment. So McLeod talks about a number of different relationships that you can have between the text and the image. I don't want to go through all of those because I don't think knowing all of those is as important as knowing all of the um, ways in which we can move from panel to panel, all of those panel to panel transitions, because the majority of the text in Monstrous does what he says is his sort of last category for text and image. The most common type of word picture combination in comics is the interdependent. The interdependent, that there is a strong relationship between both text and image, where words and pictures go hand in hand to convey an idea that neither could convey alone. That neither could convey alone. And you might say, well, no, a book could talk about somebody, an explosion, and then some people coming through. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They just wouldn't do it this way, right? And I, an idea is more than just, you know, how it denotes. It's how it connotes, how it feels, what it evokes in us as a reader or a viewer. And so you get the official report saying the violence committed against the brave members of our order can be described as obscene. And what the image shows us is that the violence committed against the brave members of our order was perpetuated to a large degree by the Inquisitrixes after they showed up to see what Micah did, right? So the report is like, oh yeah, these Arcanics, um, these monsters, they're the ones who did all this stuff. But it's the Inquisitrixes who do a good deal of the violence, some really, really brutal uh, moments. And there's this, again, there's this ironic distance between what the report is saying and what we are seeing as image. Arcanics have never shown mercy to our kind, says the report. They are abominations who thrive off the anguish and suffering of their victims. Mercy is a concept wholly foreign to their foul intelligences. And that text is in contrast with an image where the Inquisitrix's uh, lackeys are going around and shooting their own people to sort of quiet things down, to keep things covered up. McLeod says that when pictures carry the weight of clarity in a scene, they free words to explore a wider idea. And I think we see that in this sequence. We see it throughout the, the entire book that Sana Takeda's art carries the weight of clarity so often that Marjorie Liu is free to do other things with language. Like in this, you know, to, to be able to comment on the corruption of this organization that the Inquisitrixes work for without having to come out and go, oh, by the way, they're corrupt. The the image tells us they are. The way they act tells us that they are. And the text really brings that home. McLeod also talks about movement, motion. Uh, comics are fixed images. They don't move. And so how do I how do I tell my reader that movement is occurring? And we've had action lines, or in, in manga, they're also called speed lines. Um, that have been in comics for years. There's these really dynamic lines, either going, you know, in this image of McLeod running down a street, lines coming out from behind him. It just means motion is occurring. It doesn't mean he's actually got lines coming out from behind him any more than Micah's race with these jackals or what are they? They're hyenas. Um, is, you know, it's, it's not that she's running through a bunch of black lines. Those black lines are implying rapid motion speed that's moving towards us as the reader. And this is strongly inspired. McLeod actually has a couple panels of this strongly inspired by uh, manga art. 
So Japanese comics have had an increasing influence on American comics, but Takeda is a Japanese artist. And so that influence is uh, perhaps even greater. Although, I mean, she's got this wonderful blend of manga sensibilities and a sort of American, some, some American style as well. McLeod also talks about how, though, you know, you don't just use speed lines to do this. If you want to convey speed and you want to make sure that your reader understands all of what happens in the movement, and the movement is particularly complex, then you might want to uh, employ multiple images of the subject. And we have this moment where one of the Inquisitrixes jumps from the top of the stairs and does a couple of cool flips, and she's wielding a sword, and swish, 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 she's cutting her way through these guards and she jumps and then it goes to the next panel and she jumps to the floor and all the guards are just kind of still there in the way that they were in the last panel and then they kind of explode into bloody heaps in uh, the third panel but that first one contains four instance four instances of the inquisitrix leader Four instances, and someone who's not familiar with comics art might look at that and go, am I supposed to be seeing four? I didn't see four different characters, or I saw three Inquisitrixes, but now there's four. Like, there might be that kind of confusion. And for those of you who are longtime comics readers, be like, really? No, come on. Hey, 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 come on. It's hard to learn to ride a bike. And it's hard to teach how to ride a bike, especially after you've been riding one for a long time. These are just some of the things that someone who reads comics their entire life might just look right over. And I'll say this as well. I think that most of the people who read comics a lot read them mostly for story and don't really stop to analyze how the image is doing what it does. They just read for story and they they remember plot points and lore points about like, well, back in issue 345 of whatever it might be, so-and-so did such and such. And But are they analyzing it as comics, as the comics medium? Probably not probably just as narrative. I like to talk about both. Uh, we also want to look at color, especially in a book as beautiful as, as Monstrous. And McLeod talks about how improvements in print technology allowed us to do greater and greater things with comic. Um, a lot comics allowed color to take a central role, express a dominant mood, add depth, color conveying so much more than just Batman's costumes, gray and blue. The Hulk is green but conveying a sense of mood, that difference between the flashback and the now. Uh, and McLeod's uh, understanding comics was um, written before huge leaps in coloring that came as a result of digital coloring of comics. Uh, that, was, that was a totally different thing. That was just like over the top, uh, new, new things that could be done in terms of depth of color. And so when people look at really old comics, they'll be like, oh, they're not very good. And it's like, you have no idea what those people had to go through to just get those effects. We can do all sorts of stuff with digital painting that was, you know, would have been cost prohibitive, print prohibitive, would have been very difficult to bring those, you know, to print uh, in the way that, that we do today so effortlessly. We almost get a, a painterly aspect in the way that Sana Takeda renders the colors of Monstrous. A lot of sepia tones, though, again, very, you know, and steampunk loves its browns, right? So we get a lot of browns and golds, um, this this uh, warm, but a sort of vintage uh, look to everything. And then there's these splashes of color in some of the costumes that just really make the page pop and make those costumes stand out to us. 
But even more so is the use of magic. Whenever magic or energy, some kind of technology uh, is used, we get vibrant, vibrant colors. And when those are set against the desaturated color palette of the world of Monstrous, they really leap out and cause us to take notice. And so the magic of the Arcanics or the, 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 the technology uh, of the, the, the other coalition, they, they jump out because of that contrast. So, you know, color is something that can be used to just, hey, let's color the page and make sure that you know that this color is gray and blue and this one is green and purple. Um, but it can also be used to help us understand the action in deeper ways and or to focus on a certain aspect of the page or the absence of color, right? In the sequences when Micah is inside herself talking to the monstrosity within these completely like, and we don't want to completely desaturated ghostly images of both, uh, set against the color images of the real world. So in, we're inside, we've got that dreamlike quality, right? And we can set those things apart. And if we're reading with an analytic eye, we can see that right away. We say, oh, okay, I understand. This is not, she's not really there. She's observing this as though she is ghostly. We want to be able to analyze comics well, though, when we have a comic that's as beautiful as uh, Monstrous is. This is an absolutely gorgeous work of comics art. Santa Takeda, one of the I think one of the best artists working in comics today. Fabulous sequential art. Every image, a painting, um, ab absolutely great. And you want to set that against. There's lots of lots of artists working in comics who can draw lovely pictures, but they can't tell a story. Marjorie Liu is a writer who uses prose in some of her other work, but here she is teaming up together with an artist who's pictures are as powerful as lose prose. We want to be able to analyze those in the best way possible. So I hope that this crash course in comics, steampunk comics in particular, monstrous in particular, helps you to read comics in a deeper way.